0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today we continue our series Remaining Steadfast in Distressing Times as we look to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 verse 6 to 13 and Dr. Newfeld bringing us a message entitled Standing Firm.
1: A little boy once said to his father, Dad, let's play darts. I'll throw the darts and you say, wonderful. (laughs) I love that. You know, that boy clearly relishes his dad's encouragement. You know, all boys and girls do. We need our parents to express delight in us. That builds a sense of stability and allows us to weather harsh attacks from our enemies in the future. You know, apparently the Duke of Wellington, the man who defeated Napoleon at Waterloo, was not an easy man to serve under. And when he was once asked by a woman if he had his life to live all over again, what would he do differently? And he confessed, I would give more praise. But here's what I've noticed about praise. You know, some people hand out praise in bucket loads, and that praise is so over the top, so much so that the praise they hand out loses its potency. And others feel that if you praise people at all, it will cause their heads to swell, and so they say nothing good at all. They never praise anyone. I think in Paul, we find a sense of realism, It recognizes we need to be rebuked for sinful and unproductive behavior, and yet we need to be praised for positive behavior. And so in this last section, in which Paul praises God for the Thessalonians, we find Paul genuinely, and here I got to stress the word genuinely, that is, when he praises them, he actually does it from the heart. Let's start by reading 1 Thessalonians 3, 6 to 8. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you, for this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith, for now we live if you're standing fast in the Lord. Now, Paul would never have known what good things God was doing in Thessalonica were it not for the fact that he sent Timothy to them. And since Paul was human, he no doubt wondered, you know, how the Thessalonians might have felt about him. I mean, perhaps they would have thought he was a troublemaker. I mean, perhaps they're still smarting by the note of security that Jason had to pay in order to secure that the city would have peace in the future. You know, the crazy thing about having no news is that our minds can play tricks on us, and we might even imagine every conceivable negative scenario. You know, we already know that Paul's greatest concern was that the persecution the Thessalonians endured might have caused them to be discouraged. So the key phrase in verses 6 to 8 is found in verse 7. We have been comforted about you through your faith. You know, other translations say, we were encouraged about you through your faith. And the context in which Paul says that is, of course, that this encouragement came, as Paul says, in all our distress and affliction. I guess the affliction hadn't gone away after Paul and Silas left Thessalonica. And we know that Paul wrote these words while he was in Corinth, and, and Luke tells us what Paul was likely referring to. Acts 18, verse 6 says that the Jews, meaning the Jewish religious leadership, opposed him. They reviled him in Corinth, meaning they utterly hated him in that city. And later in the same chapter, we hear of them making a charge against him before the Greek proconsul of the city. And of course, that thing ended unlike the city of Thessalonica. In Corinth, the Greek proconsul told the religious leaders, get lost. And he literally drove them from the place of governance. But it was distressing. And Paul says, when Timothy came to me and told me about how you're doing in Thessalonica, I was comforted. I was encouraged. My spirits were lifted. You have no idea how your faithfulness is encouraging me, he says. Now, have you noticed that there are some people for whom the only interesting news is bad news? You know, they hear some Christian leader who's fallen into sexual sin and they begin to gossip. Some Christian business person has acted unethically. They shake their head in righteous disgust. Or some local church is experiencing disunity and they eagerly denounce it. You know, some people only get interested if the news is bad. So then their eyes light up and they can't wait to talk with others with, you know, here in quotes, with concerned people. You know, one of the reasons Paul was so different is because he was waiting news about people he was invested in. Let me suggest some examples. I remember the very first time a person I had led to Christ actually leading someone else to Christ. You can't imagine the joy I felt. I remember the first time I saw a young man who was my intern go on to become a successful pastor. I mean, years later, he still called himself my intern. I know of people whom I've watched go from baby Christians to being godly elders and deacons and Bible study leaders and effective examples of Christ in numerous walks of life. See, I love what John the Apostle writes when he addresses his dear friend Gaius, that's in 3 John verses 3 and 4. For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Everyone ought to have that experience. Once you've had that kind of experience, it's going to transform your life. You'll go from being a grouchy complainer who's never satisfied with anything that happens, you know, at church, to an active agent of transformation, who brings great joy in being a part of God's agenda. But this delight in the progress of others, well, it makes two assumptions. In the first, it assumes shared experiences. I mean, look again at the latter half of verse six, and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. See, in order to have pleasant memories, you, you have to enter into the lives of others. You have to break off your isolation. You have to stop being motivated by what an encounter with people will cost you, and you got to be motivated by the reward that an encounter with people can bring to you. You have to enter deeply into the life of your local church and invest in your own growth and the growth of others to understand what Paul is saying. So first, Paul's attitude assumes that we understand the depth of shared ministry experiences, and then second, Paul's attitude also assumes that our well-being is tied to the well-being of others. Look again at verse 8. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. You know, most Bible teachers say that this statement, now we live, is hyperbole. That is, it's a deliberate exaggeration, and it's understood to be an exaggeration to make a point. And every once in a while, I'll say to my wife, you know, I can't imagine life without you. Now, now in truth, that's an exaggeration, and she knows it. In many years of pastoral ministry, I've spent time with plenty of widows and widowers. I've listened to their stories. The grief, the loneliness, the immediate loss of status. Those are only a few of the things that all widows and widowers face. And in truth, I can imagine that. You know, what I'm telling Kathy is that I don't want to experience that. And of course, I know that matter is completely in God's hands and that God gives grace for each hour. You know, but I never tell Kathy, you know, if I didn't have you, I'd be just fine. God's going to take care of me. You know, rather, I want to tell her how how precious each year is. God gives us together. And, And that's what I mean when I say I can't imagine life without her. There's a certain degree of hyperbole there, but it's meant to make a point. You know, in the same way, when Paul says now we really live, he's not saying that if the Thessalonian Christians had abandoned their faith or been discouraged beyond all remedy, he would have lost reason for living. But he is saying that his joy is definitely enhanced when he finds out how healthy their faith has become. And again, a little point of application will help us here. Everyone has things they seek for joy. You know, some seek wealth, some seek marriage, some seek university degrees or career accomplishments, some want the house of their dreams. I mean, you know what I mean. What would it be if we were to say with Paul, I really live when I find that the people I've invested in are living fully for Christ. There is no greater joy. Nothing turns me on more. There's no greater longing. Outside of my longing, for Christ that beats my longing to see God's people prospering in their own faith." So let's go all the way back to verse 6. But now that Timothy has come to us from you, he has brought us the good news of your faith and love. It really is quite astonishing that the two words, good news, well, in the Greek, it's the same word that Paul uses for the gospel. And in every other place where Paul speaks of the good news or the gospel, Well, he's speaking about the glad proclamation that Christ has died for our sins, the just for the unjust, and that we by faith, that is, by repentance and believing, can be forgiven and cleansed and filled with the Holy Spirit and given eternal life. That's always the good news, and that's how Paul uses this word. But here, the only place Paul speaks of the good news in terms of the deep roots of both faith and love that he sees in the Thessalonians. And Paul immediately knows that the faith of those believers is the real deal. And in his mind, what he sees in them is the gospel, the good news, the joy of seeing Christ taking root in them.
0: Great missions require great partnerships. When we join forces, we can carry the gospel of Jesus so much further than anybody could alone. This month, we're thrilled to share that Back to the Bible Canada is introducing a renewed monthly partner program now called Companions for the Gospel. Monthly partners play a key role in this ministry. They provide a reliable, consistent source of funds that helps sustain current and future gospel-centered initiatives we want to encourage you to become a part of this essential group of partners. There are a few benefits to becoming a companion of the gospel, but even more important is the impact your partnership will make in sharing the truth of God's Word. To find out more, to sign up, or to give a one-time gift, visit us at backtothebible.ca or call 1-800-663-2425.
1: once any follower of Jesus invests so deeply in another and is filled with joy when they see them advance in the faith, I mean, that delight in the spiritual growth of others, well, it naturally leads us to pray earnestly for them. Look, I'm not arguing that we shouldn't pray for all sorts of people. I mean, missionaries, for example, we definitely should, but have you noticed how much more intensely you pray when you're invested in the person you're praying for? So let's look at verses 9 to 13, and, you know, in the Greek language, those five verses are actually only one sentence, and they all constitute Paul's comments and his prayer. So, verses 9 to 13. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith? Now, may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. There are several ways in which we can interpret this prayer, but in keeping with Paul's passion for the Thessalonian believers— we can see that it is a prayer of a man who loves Jesus and loves people. It's his intimacy with people that drives him to his knees. So, you see, intimacy with people ought to bring each one of us to our knees. When you and I go out of our way to enter into the real experiences of people, it becomes the basis for our praying. What kind of prayer does Paul pray? I want you to see four themes in his prayer, and they can become a pattern for the way in which we pray as well. So, first... We should pray with thankfulness for the people of God. Verse 9, For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God? See, Paul has gone from speaking to the Thessalonians to speaking to God. But of course, he's telling the Thessalonians about his prayer at the same time. He sees that they're progressing. He's thanking God for that. But at the same time, he wants the Thessalonians to see That he's aware of what God is doing in their lives. See, I wonder how much we would transform any church if each of us made a practice of thanking God for others and then, you know, either wrote them a note to personally told them about what we had thanked God for. Perhaps, you know, you've seen someone exercise faith in an hour of uncertainty, or perhaps you know of someone who's dared share their faith with someone else for the very first time ever. Maybe someone you know regularly visits the sick in the hospital or shut-ins at home, or maybe you've witnessed someone struggling with bitterness, and now you've seen that they've forgiven their enemies and begun to love them. Perhaps someone you know has just conquered a sin in their lives that they've been fighting with for years. Don't you think you should tell them that you're thanking God for what you've seen in them? You should. Second, we should pray for the strengthening of God's people. Verses 10 and 11 as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what's lacking in your faith. Now, may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. See, I love that phrase, night and day. It's a common way for Paul to pray. Back in 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 2, he's already told them that he's always thanking God for them. And then in chapter 2, verse 13, he says, he prays for them, he says, continually, and now he says, night and day. See, I don't think that Paul means for us to believe, you know, that he never sleeps. Neither are we to think that he does nothing other than praying. I think he means that his frequent regular times of prayer include prayer for them at least each morning and each evening. And when he gives himself to regular times of prayer, he has the Thessalonians always before God. That in itself is a lesson enough, don't you think? In fact, Paul is teaching us that our prayers for others ought to be systematic. But it's a content of the prayers that also is really fascinating. He prays for an opportunity to see them again so that he might supply what's lacking in their faith. It's not that Paul thought that they were defective Christians, but because he was there for only a short time, there were so many things that he was unable to teach them. And as we continue to read through this letter, we can see that he had not yet completed their training. They needed to learn more about sexual conduct and holiness while living in a very sensual culture. You know, second, they they needed to learn more about love for others. And finally, Paul had not yet completed their needed lesson on the second coming of Jesus. See, faithful churches put a great emphasis on the teaching of the Word of God. We place great emphasis on training people to be effective disciples who know their Bible doctrines. You know, that's because we live in a world where it's especially important to understand truth and to recognize error. We need to be trained to abandon love for this world and embrace love for Christ. And Paul, in effect, is praying for an opportunity to give himself in ever-increasing service for the church in Thessalonica. And there's an important principle here. This means we pray with a mindset. We should be praying that we can do something for others that will supply what's lacking in their faith. We should do this specifically around people whom we've come to know and have entered into their lives. So Paul's prayer is taken up in thankfulness for the Thessalonians and then that they would be strengthened. And now here is the third aspect of his prayer, verse 12. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you. In the Greek and Roman world of Paul's day, it was especially hierarchical. Nearly half of the Roman Empire's citizens were slaves. There was a wealthy aristocracy who believed that, that life was all about being served by the lesser classes. Slaves were often considered to be less than human and were thought of as tools to be treated as the owner desired. But there were all sorts of other divisions as well. The Christian gospel introduced something absolutely radical. They introduced the love of Christ among people. Slaves and masters began to call each other brothers and sisters. In fact, the book of Philemon interestingly defines that. In it, Paul sends a slave. This is a man whom he's won to Christ, but he sends him back to his master with a message. Verse 17, welcome him as you would welcome me. Verse 16, he is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a man and as a brother in the Lord. You know, many commentators believe the reason that short book of Philemon was preserved is because that young slave became one of the bishops of the ancient church. Galatians 3.28, Paul writes, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And, and that's love. Love. It levels the playing field. It it brings people of various ethnic and economic categories together. And I have no doubt that the Christian ethic of love turned the ancient world upside down. Love broke down the barriers between people. And love will do the same in our world today. Love is the most revolutionary thing any church can possess. It's a witness to the world. See, I believe that our society gorges itself on self-interest, lust, and an admiration of people who have become wealthy by taking advantage of others. Go online and see all the self-help books. Everyone wants to teach you how to help yourself, and almost no one wants to teach you how to help your neighbor. There's so little love to be found in our, you know, cold, hard, brutal, and self-centered world. It's no wonder that people are lonely. You know, it's possible to fall prey to this same attitude and begin fighting over matters that are not kingdom-oriented. Show me a church that prays for unity in love. I'll show you a church that has become a fragrant aroma to a watching world. Show me a church where self-interest has been swallowed up in brother and sister love, and I will show you a church that follows Jesus. We must pray increasingly for a spirit of love among each other. But Paul says, I pray that you're increasing and abounding in love, that you're overflowing with love, that you're becoming rich in love. So we see the delight and the progress of others leads to prayer. It leads to prayers of thankfulness, prayers for strengthening and, and prayers for love. And finally, it leads to a prayer for the holiness of the people of God. Look at verse 13. So that we may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. You know, in a way, this verse sums up the entire chapter. Every faithful church has two marks. They have a passion for Jesus, and they have a passion for people. And when Paul prays for the Thessalonians to be blameless and holy, he's praying for them to be just that kind of a church. Committed to Christ, committed to people. It's what Christ wants for every church. A passion for Christ means we're worshiping him, but we're also overflowing with the love that he has given us. May God have mercy on us and fill our land with just those kinds of
0: churches. Thanks so much, John. You know, as we consider the circumstances of our day and for the early church, what would you say is the Christian's responsibility in respect to investing in the lives of others? You know, I think that one of the ways we can invest
1: in the lives of fellow believers is just simply showing up at church. It is so encouraging for us to be there. Just being there means something. Uh, I think we should uh, go out of our way. We should invest in the lives of others by beginning relationships with people that we've never had a relationship before. We should invest in the lives of others, especially by those of us who are more mature in the faith, should begin to make sure that we're investing in the lives of people who are younger in the faith. Maybe read scripture with them, pray with them, that kind of a thing. Um, We should look for the hurting in every, you know, so many different ways. I think we should just be led by the Holy Spirit in much of this thing. So when Paul is talking about what's lacking in our faith, um, we should be asking ourselves constantly, is there something that I can do that makes up for that which a person is lacking? Just make
0: that a priority. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series in First Thessalonians right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. The command to make disciples is not just for church leaders or congregations. It's for every believer and every ministry effort in Jesus' name. Back to the Bible Canada is a disciple-making ministry through its teaching, broadcasts, and publications. One of these publications includes the bi-monthly magazine, Truth and Life. This year, Truth and Life has had a unique discipleship focus, with each issue highlighting a different marker of discipleship. It's our hope that each of the elements of discipleship explored will help lay a foundation of what it really means to be a follower of Jesus. And thank you so much for your continued financial support. Your gifts allow resources like Truth and Life magazine and so many others to fulfill its mission and provide trustworthy Bible resources at no cost. To subscribe and receive a free copy of the next issue mailed directly to your home, visit backtothebible.ca or call 1-800-663-2425.